Oh, how's everybody tonight? Good. I want to invite you to open up 1 Samuel chapter 30. Maybe 31, we'll see. 60? First <laughs> uh, Samuel chapter 30, as we pick up the story of David. Now, as we look at where David's at, you remember last time, as we were uh, uh, taking a look at his life, he had fallen into a time of depression, and that depression had led him to make camp with the enemy, all the way to the point that he almost was a part of the last battle that Saul and Jonathan ever fought in. But God in his providence stopped him. He, he worked through the other lords of the Philistines who didn't want to have David on their side. So the king of the Philistines sends David back home. But God is already working in David's life as he sends him back home to get David back on track. To get David back where he needs to be. So as David's on his way back, maybe he's a little bummed, he's a little frustrated that he hasn't been accepted in the camp of the enemy. Maybe he's a little frustrated that he hasn't been accepted in the camp of God. He feels like he doesn't have a home. Saul doesn't want him. Israel doesn't want him. The Philistines don't want him. He's heading home and he's going to feel like God doesn't want him either. And that's exactly how the enemy is going to color the events of your life. He's going to color the events of your life as though it's all dark, it's all bad, there's nothing good. He's going to allow your focus to turn from what Paul would tell us in in Philippians chapter 4 to meditate on the pure and the lovely, the things that are a good report, to stay focused on the good things God's doing in our life so that we can stay on track. No, the enemy's going to whisper and he's going to say, listen, nothing's good, everything's bad. Israel doesn't want me, the Philistines don't want me, and in a minute he's going to think God doesn't want me. But that's how the enemy gets into our heart, and that's how the enemy drives us down. Here's what we're going to see tonight. What a man or woman after God's own heart does to get themselves back on track. To not pay attention to the lies of the enemy. You know the enemy is going to lie to you, right? You know he's going to whisper in your ear, it's all lost, it's all for naught, everything's bad, nothing's good. He's going to cause you to despair. But what we want to recognize is that God said in Jeremiah, in the darkest time of Israel's history, the worst time they would ever go through while they're being chained up and dragged off into slavery, God said, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, thoughts of good and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Wasn't on the sunny day, wasn't on a happy time. When God spoke those words, they were going to slavery in chains, being drugged naked back to Babylon. But God said, I know what I'm doing. Trust me, it'll be for your good. Now, doesn't the Bible tell us something like that in the book of Romans? Romans 8, 28, doesn't it say, for we know most things work out for good? Yeah, (laughs) all things. For we know, it's not we think, it's not we hope, it's not maybe, it's we know all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. So when we look at the scripture, this is what God teaches us. The events and the things that occur in our life, he will use them for good. The enemy means to destroy us with them. We, are we all on the same page? Remember Joseph, right? Joseph has a dream. God's going to use him in mighty ways. In fact, he sees his whole family bow down to him. 
Now, when Joseph was in the pit being sold as a slave, you think he still felt like God's chosen? How about when he was being accused of, of rape, something he didn't do? You think he still felt like God's chosen? What about when he spent the next 13 years going between slavery and prison? You think he felt like God's chosen? But all those things worked together for good to make Joseph the leader God was calling him to be. And the same is true for David. He's in a dark time right now, but God is still working. You and I, we read the story. We see God working behind the scenes, causing David to stay out of the battle where he had seen his best friend in the entire world killed by his own forces. God kept him out of that battle and it was going to get him back on track. But David doesn't know God's working. David's experiencing life one day at a time, just like we do. David's on his way home. And he's wondering if he has any place in this world that he fits because nobody wants him. Israel don't. Philistines don't. Where's my place? What's my purpose? So it says in chapter 30, verse 1, Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziglag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziglag, attacked Ziglag and burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. Now, just pause for a minute. Let's remember what David's been up to. David's been running raids in the southern area of the Philistine encampment, telling the Philistines that he was raiding Israel. Who was he making his raids against? Canaanites, the Amalekites. The Amalekites in Scripture are always a picture of the flesh. That's why God told Saul, eradicate them, wipe them out. How are we supposed to deal with our flesh? Eradicate it, wipe it out, don't listen, pay no heed to the desires of the flesh, but rather feed and empower the spirit. So David is coming home. He thinks Israel don't want me. The Philistines don't want me. He gets home and finds out that the Amalekites have been there and taken his whole family captive. Well, not just his. His 600 men, all their wives, all their children, all their babies, all their flocks, all their wealth, whatever they had is gone and the city is burning. Now, I'd say that's as close to David being bottom for this period of his life as he's going to get. I'm sure the thoughts run through his mind. God, where were you while I was gone? My thought would be at that moment, David, why are you thinking that God's hand is a blessing is going to be upon you when you're in disobedience to him? When God has called you to be king of his nation and here you are with the enemy. When God has directed you according to his word, the word of the prophet, and the way that God would have you walk, but here you are in disobedience. Why do we expect the blessing of God, no matter where we are in our life, and no matter what's going on in our life? And when the blessing doesn't happen, we always, we, myself included, tend to get irritated at God. Where are you, God? And the question truly should be turned around, where are you? Where am I? Now, every time bad things happen in our life, it is not indicative that we are in a life of sin. We know that from Job, right? The Bible says Job was a righteous man. But God was working something in his life. 
But I think it's certainly something that we ought to be searching when we find ourselves. If, if we're like Ruth, you remember the story of Ruth? And they're there in the land of Moab. The Bible calls Moab in the, in the book of Psalms the wash pot. The, the clearest example of that for us today would be a toilet. God says, Moab is my wash pot. It's a, it's a toilet. It's a sewer. It's a bad place to be. But Ruth and her family moved there. And when they got there, the famine that they were fleeing from ended. They had food, but one by one by one, people were dying. Her sons were being lost. Her husband died. They were going through difficult times. Until eventually, Naomi says, I'm going back to my father's house. Just like the prodigal son, right? I've run away, but I'm going back. It's time to go back home. David's in that same story right now. Instead of a pigsty, all the families are gone. All their houses are burned. Everything is lost. And as they come to that, they're going to come to a time of despair. Look at verse 3. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, their wives and their sons and their daughters taken captive. And David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. You ever felt that kind of despair? Been a time or two where I actually thought we're not going to ever be able to cry anymore because just no more tears. You still feel terrible, but the, the tears won't come anymore. That's where David's at. They're crying. Everything's gone. Family's gone. House is torched. Israel don't want me. The Philistines don't want me. Do you you sense the despair of David in this time and in this place? And it goes on in verse 5. David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, both been taken captive. Now, David was greatly distressed. That is the single greatest understatement in this chapter. David was greatly distressed. Look why. For the people spoke of stoning him. Who was their leader? David. And where had he led them? To the enemy encampment. And those guys, when they're faced with our wives are gone, our children are gone, our city is burned, what do you think they did? They looked at David and they said, you did this. You brought us here. Why do you think Paul says, let not many of you desire to become teachers, for teachers fall under a stricter condemnation? Anytime you step into a position of leadership, whether you're leading your children and your family, whether you're leading a Sunday school classroom, whether you're leading kids at VBS or young adults or whatever it is, anytime you're leading, there is always a danger that you bring them to the Philistine camp, life gets a little rocky, and they all look at you like you ought to be stoned. That's where David's at. Now, had David been listening and hearing and abiding in the word of God, had David been being led by the spirit rather than being led by the flesh, then his whole family would not have been taken captive by the flesh. But he was being led by the flesh, Not led by the Spirit. He was making camp with the enemy. And as he's making camp with the enemy, he finds his family captured by the flesh. The Amalekites have him. And he's distressed because everybody's looking at him like, what have you done? What have you done to us? And he wakes up and becomes the leader he should have been at the beginning. He wakes up. This is what a man after God's own heart will always do. Listen. 
because the soul of the people were grieved, every man for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David tuned in. We can, get, we can become guilty of, of living life on cruise control. Have you ever been driving down the road, just kind of cruising, maybe going someplace far away, and all of a sudden you kind of wake up, not that your eyes were closed, but you don't remember like the last 10 miles? And you think, oh, I hope I didn't run over somebody or something. I, don't, I can't even remember that. It's like I just was fog. We can go through life like that, in a fog. And things come into our life. Listen, the scriptures declare to us, you and me as human beings, we wake up in the furnace of affliction. That is why the scriptures tell us to count it all joy when you go into various trials. Because that means God's working in your life. And he's going to get your eyes on him. And he's going to get your heart toward him. And he's going to do a work. He's going to make something happen. And so, so the scriptures tell us, don't despise those days. Embrace them. Embrace the storm. Not that we enjoy the torture, but we understand that the hand of God is working in the storm. The hand of God is working in the event. David, he's despaired. He's weeping. He's thinking, I, I don't belong in Israel. I don't belong in the Philistines. Now my family's all gone. God, where were you? And he makes a choice. This is what a man or woman, after God's own heart, will always do when they find that point. When that point that we come to, like the prodigal son in the pigsty, or like Naomi in the land of Moab, or David in the land of the Philistines. You hit a point where you turn toward God and you seek Him. Had David sought God about a year and a half earlier, do you think God would have told him, go hang out with the Philistines? I guarantee He wouldn't have. But he didn't seek the Lord and he found himself there. What about Naomi? Did she seek the Lord? Did her and her husband, Elimelech, did they seek God? No, they were running away from famine. And they ran from the house of God to the toilet. That's the picture in the scripture. The house of bread to the toilet. What about David? He left the promised land for the land of the lost. That's where he went. He had the promised land and the blessings of God and, and, and God working in his life. But he was so tired of the battle, he went to the land of the lost. He went to the enemy camp to actually fight against his own people. But in those places, just like the prodigal son, God wakes them up. And a man or woman after God's own heart will strengthen themselves in the Lord. Now let me tell you the danger. The danger is coming to those places and not recognizing your spiritual state, where you've been and what you've been rebelling against. And shaking your fist at God and thinking, he owes me. He owes me because of the things I've done for him. He owes me because of the life and the things I've given up. The things I've said no to in my life because I don't drink and I don't smoke and I don't do these things and I don't curse and I read my Bible every day and I pray three times a day and I do all these things and because I do all those things, God owes me. 
But the Bible tells us my, filthy, my, my righteousness is as filthy rags. Best I can do will never measure up to what God has done for me. And then the question is asked, what we talked about Sunday morning. Who are you carrying the stone for? Are you carrying the stone so that God will bless you? Then stop. He doesn't owe you anything. You owe him. And what you owe him is not the carrying of the stone. What you owe him is a debt of love. The greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And because you love God, you will honor your parents. Because you love God, you'll love your wives. Because you love God, you'll submit to your husband. Because you love God, you will keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Because I love him. That's our response. David finds himself in that place. He's low and he recognizes, man, I have fallen out of love with God. I've come to a place where I have not responded like I should. So he strengthens himself in the Lord. We know how David strengthened himself. He wrote Psalms. He sat down and wrote songs about, Lord, how did I get here? And forgive me. Create in me a clean heart. He, he writes psalms about turning back to the Lord and seeing God uh, vanquish his enemies and deliver his family. So he strengthens himself in the Lord. Folks, when we are, are walking, going through this life, following the road that God has for us, we need to recognize everything we do for God. If our attitude is, God owes me because I've been doing for him, our attitude is sideways. It's I love God. Because I love God, I want to do the things God's called me to do because of what God has done for me. And if when we say what God has done for me, we're looking around our life and we're thinking, but what has he done for me lately? You have lost sight of the sacrifice Jesus Christ made for you. And that's where David was. But in the midst of the smoke and the fire and the loss of his family... He falls down before the Lord and strengthens himself in the hand of the Lord. That's what a man or woman, after God's own heart, will do. In the pit, in the worst parts, in the hardest times of life, they will draw near to God. Near to him. And seek his plan for their life. And that's what we see David doing. Look what happens. So David said the Abiathar, the priest, Ahimelech's son... Bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. Now remember when we talk about the ephod, we're talking about the high priest's garment, the breastplate that he wore with the 12 stones of Israel on his heart, signifying that he always had the, the 12 tribes of Israel. God always had the 12 tribes of Israel on his heart. And the priest was to have the 12 tribes of Israel on his heart. There with him. And so he's got the ephod, and David's going to ask him to, to, to ask the Lord. So David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue the troop? And this, this is a breath of fresh air in 1 Samuel, because it's been a while since we've seen David do this. Sometimes we get on autopilot. I got this one, God. I got this one. I know what to do. But David's saying, Lord, shall I go? Shall I pursue? 
Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, and you will surely overtake them. Listen, and without fail, recover all. I love that God told him that. Because he knows, the scripture tells us God knows what we can handle and how much we can take. And David maybe is in a pretty fragile place and he comes before the Lord and the Lord says, yes, go take them. And then he tells him, you're going to get it all back. That's one of the, that's one of the promises I cling to when Kathy and I were going through the hard times in our marriage was in, in the book of Joel, which was written to the nation of Israel. It wasn't written to me, but I laid claim to it. In the book of Joel, the prophet Joel told the nation of Israel, if you don't follow God, the locusts are coming. And they're going to eat it all. They're going to eat all your crops. They're going to eat everything. They're going to eat years. They're going to eat your life. They're going to eat all the stuff. It's like the crazy, the, the devourer Malachi talks about, that God will bind the devourer. The, have you ever had the devourer come through your life? And everything's eaten. There have been times in my life where I, I have walked in disobedience to what God has called me to do. And I'm unwilling to tithe. And I'm unwilling to do the things that the Lord is saying. And in those times, doesn't matter what I do, I never have enough. And then I've made the choice that I'm going to be obedient to what God's called me to do. And we can't figure out how it's going to work on paper. Everybody's heard all the stories. Nobody listens anymore. But the idea is the devourer goes away. He's bound and somehow it works. Because we're obedient to what God's asking us to do. Well, the children of Israel are disobedient and the locusts come and they eat it all. But the prophet Joel gave the people a promise. He said, if you return to God, I'll give you back the years the locusts ate. When Kathy and I renewed our vows on our 20th anniversary, we got rings. And the rings say to give them beauty for ashes. The reason they say to give them beauty for ashes is because when I told the guy, I want you to put on there, give them back the years that the locusts ate, he looked at me like I was crazy. What? You want to give them back the years that the locusts ate on your wedding ring? Yeah, man, that's, we need that. He said, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. So he couldn't fit it. So he did beauty for ashes. Because that's pretty close to the same thing. I'll restore to you the years the locusts ate. God's done that. Well, he didn't give me back the things that were lost. And he, and he didn't make it all go away. But he's made my life as full or fuller than it was before we got on that sideways road running away from God. So... We seek the Lord, we inquire of him, and God gives the promise, without fail, you will recover all. So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Basor, where, they, uh, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, uh, who were so weary they could not cross the, the brook Basor. Now, when you read this, I want you to recognize that David has been doing a lot of travel. Remember, he just hiked with a with the Philistine army to do battle against Israel. Then he, he hiked all the way back home 
to discover that his family was taken. And now he's turned around and he's on another hike. And 200 of his men are war to the bone. They can't continue to pursue. And David and the other 400 are still able to pursue. So they leave 200 men behind, 200 men to watch over their gear, their stuff, their their encampment. So it says, Scripture tells us, Then they found an Egyptian in a field. They brought him to David. They gave him bread, and he ate, and they let him drink water. And they gave him a piece of, of cake, of figs, and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his strength came back to him, for he had, had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. That tells us he was close to dead. Close to dead. Well, you can go without food for that long, not water. Body needs water. Dehydrated, weak. So, David said to him, Who do you belong to and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern area, the Cherethites, and the territory that belongs to Judah, and of the southern area of Caleb, we burned Ziglag with fire. David said to him, Can you take me down to this troop? So he said, Swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me to the hands of my master, and I'll take you down to the troop. And when he had brought him down, there they were, spread out over all the land, eating, drinking, dancing, Because all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah. That's what the flesh always does. The flesh always rejoices in its victories. It always rejoices in what it's got. In what it has. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. How was he uh, 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 proud in his flesh when he looked over his kingdom and he said, Oh, look at this wonderful kingdom which I have built. The flesh always wants to celebrate the victories. Where do the victories come from? From the Lord. We we achieve those victories because God's hand is upon us. We do not achieve victory because there is something inherently good about us. And we have got to come to a point where we recognize that. I am not inherently good. A few weeks ago, we talked about this idea. When the siege came upon the children of Israel at the time of Jeremiah, while Jeremiah was prophesying in Jerusalem, and Ezekiel's prophesying in Babylon, and Daniel's there in Babylon, all those things are going on. The siege, which, which lasted uh, for, for more than a year there over Jerusalem, as they're there and the people are starving, all those people reach a point Whereas their children die, they put them on a cook stove, they cook them, and they eat them. And people want to say their situation got so depraved that they went against what they would normally do. And I say the situation got so bad they could no longer hide who they really are. And they did what every man is capable of doing. What every woman is capable of doing. The Bible says, if we believe the Bible is true, the Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked. 
And who can know it? The Bible says that there's no end to the evil that man can do. No end. It's either true or it's not. And it's it's not going to be true for the most part, but not for me, because I am really good. No. The Bible tells in the book of Romans, chapter 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. So how many are righteous? Nobody. There is none good. There are none that seek after God. People say things like, I was searching for the Lord. No, you weren't. God was looking for you. There he had 99 sheep and one was missing. And the one sheep that was missing, he, he went out, left the 99, and he found the one who was lost. It's God who seeks. It's God who calls. It's we who, when we hear his voice, if we're his, we come. We come to him. We desire to, to be there in that place. God does it. It wasn't something I did. We, we start to deceive ourselves. Scripture says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. And that, that's a spiritual reality. A spiritual truth. Doesn't matter how we dress up the outside. Jesus could have just as easily said about us what he said about the Pharisees. You are whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Every single one of us, at whatever time in our life, have doctored up our outsides so that people couldn't hear or see what was happening on the inside. Not, Not necessarily saying that that's inherently bad. What I am saying is that shows there's darkness in us. And it's God who will do the work to pull that darkness out of us, to to turn that darkness off. So there's the flesh. What's the flesh doing? Reveling in its victories. What do we want to understand from that? If I'm reveling in my victories, if I'm reveling in my goodness, if I'm reveling in what I'm doing that's right, then I am reveling in my flesh. If I am praising God for what he's done in my life, if I'm glorifying him, if I'm pointing the finger to him, now I'm standing in the spirit. Do we understand the difference? Not making a show, not not just saying words. I'm not talking about churchese. I'm talking about that's our condition of our heart. Glorifying God for where we're at and for what God's doing. So what does David do? He does what we all have to do in regard to the flesh. He attacked it. Attacked. David attacked them. He attacked them from twilight until evening of the next day. So twilight, as the sun's going down, say 6 p.m., fought all night long, all day the next day, until the next evening to win back his family. He fought against the flesh until he had the victory. To win back our families, to fight for our children, to fight for our husbands and wives, to fight for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should do battle against the flesh from the beginning until the end. All the way through, focused, being, doing what God wants us to do and how God wants us to do it. 
The scripture goes on and says, Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all the Amalekites, uh, all that they had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. Now here's the thing that I take from this. The flesh is still there to do battle another day. Remember way back when Saul was told to obliterate them all? He didn't, right? He left some alive. David would have obliterated them all, but 400 of them rode away on camels. We will see the Amalekites again. In our battle with the flesh, the scripture declares to us, you and I, that the the spirit and the flesh are always at war together. Always doing battle. Always fighting. Always struggling. We need to recognize that fight will not be done or go away until we see Jesus with our eyes. Until that time, fight against the flesh. If you give the Amalekites an inch, they'll show up and snatch up your family. And they'll dance over the victory. If we think... That somewhere along our our spiritual journey, we've earned the right not to have to do battle. And we try to stay home, the flesh is going to get us. The flesh will get us. So we have to stay. We have to stay honest. We have to stay on it. We have to stay focused. We have to stay uh, uh, pulling or moving toward the Lord and accomplishing what God wants to do in our life. So here's what it says in verse 19. Nothing of theirs was lacking. Neither small nor great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. And that's what the Lord had promised him. You'll get it all. Go, you'll get it all. So he receives it all, fulfillment of what God's word had said. Then David took all the flocks and the herds they had driven before those other livestock. And he said, this is David's spoil. Remember, they had gone and conquered other people, not just Ziglag. So David, he kept those things. That became how he would feed his army, his 600 men, how he was going to take care of them. God is supplying his needs. Now David came to the 200 men that had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they also had made stay at the brook Basor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. Then listen. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered. All the wicked and worthless men. How many was that? Last I checked, we all qualify as wicked and worthless. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us that it was all of them. But here's what I would say. Any of them who was celebrating their victory that they had just won and the riches they had just received because of their own abilities wanted to stand up and, and you know pat themselves on the back for the greatness they had achieved and were unwilling then to share that with their brother. To share with the ones who had been left behind. That's what they say. They said, because they did not go with any of us, We will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. Go away. They're throwing them out. 
They're throwing out the 200 weak guys who were, who, who were with them all this time, but just were too weary to go on. Physically exhausted. It doesn't say that they just mentally gave up or that they cashed out or that says they were physically exhausted. They couldn't cross the river. And so they left them there. And now the wicked and worthless men celebrating their victory. Who gave them that victory? God, right? The Lord gave them that. But they're celebrating. Oh, we whooped the enemy. Now, aren't, aren't we just as capable of stumbling and falling in our victory as we are in the times of our defeat? Some say it's a greater opportunity for the devil to cause us to trip and fall when we experience victory because we can start to believe our press. Oh, wow, those guys are so good. So amazing, so incredible. Dad, did you see me? I took out like 10 of them with one swipe of the sword. Yeah, there was an angel swinging it, but it's okay. They, they, so they become, you see how now they've done battle with the flesh, they've won the victory, and immediately, how do we see them reacting? In the flesh. Aren't they there in the flesh? Not gonna share, just give them back their wife and children and make them leave. Is that how God works? I think here, I think here, that's not the way, and that's not the way it's gonna be, and David's gonna make sure it's never gonna be that way. Look what he says. So, David said, my brethren, you will not do so with what the Lord has given us. See, David turns their focus back. It's not our victory. It's not by might of our arms. It's not because you're so good. But God blessed us. And to whom much is given, much is required. And the Lord blesses us. Are we just supposed to hoard that? I mean, that was part of my problem with what, remember, if there's anybody here who still remembers Y2K. And we we're, we we're, I know probably none of you guys were involved in any of it, but in California, people were losing their ever-loving mind. Ever-loving mind. And it would, we seriously, I'm not lying to you, had a big old giant truck, it probably came from Idaho, pulled up into our parking lot and was giving wheat to people. Uh, I'm not talking a pickup truck. I'm talking a big old truck. Big old truck. And I got my two bags. I don't know what I was going to do with it. I was figuring out how I rub two, two stones together and make flour, I guess. I didn't have a grinder or nothing. I moved that stupid wheat until it was time to come to Idaho. I figured there's enough wheat here I didn't have to bring any with me. So I left it behind. But there was all this talk about hoarding up food. And, and, and this is probably part of my issue with, with not everyone, but some people who uh, ascribe to the, to the mid-trib view or the post-trib view of the rapture of the church. And we've got to be hoarding up stuff, and we've got to make sure we're taking care of our family. And what are you going to do? If somebody comes to you for food, are you going to shoot them? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, if any of you guys are hungry, don't go to John's house. But man, I want to. I want to. I want to be able to to love people like Jesus did. Now, here's here's what I came to realize through all that hype and craziness. I, mean, I used to drive my dad crazy when I would say this, but Elijah, during the time of famine, God told him to go sit by a tree, by a brook, 
And he sat by the tree by that brook, and God fed him by the ravens. So the point of the story is I'm not dumb enough to sit out and wait for a raven to bring me food. The point of the story is my God can supply all my needs according to his riches in glory. My God can supply all my needs. I don't have to get crazy. If God wants me to be hungry, I promise you, I don't care how many truck full of wheat show up. I will be hungry. If God wants me to have everything I need to feed the people, then those trucks full of wheat are going to accidentally show up in my house and not want to go anywhere else and leave it all there. And then there'll be an abundance and we'll feed people. My God is able to supply all my needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God is able. He is able. Now these guys are thinking, we've done this great thing and we better keep what's ours and don't share anything. They weren't part of the battle. They weren't smart enough to, to have had the energy that they needed. Or they want to point to the, the, the parable of the virgins, which we're going to be talking about in about four weeks on Sundays. Uh, we'll be talking about the parable of the virgins. They say they weren't ready. They weren't ready. Listen, the, just short Announcement, the parable of virgins is about having the Holy Spirit. Doesn't have anything to do with oil or wheat or canned goods. It has to do with having the Holy Spirit. How do you get the Holy Spirit? When you're saved. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, the scripture declares that you are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. So not having the Holy Spirit would mean you're not saved. And when the wedding, when it's time for the wedding to begin, when Jesus is bringing his people home, it's too late to go, oh, yeah, I, I should have made a decision about Christ. Not making a decision is a decision. Your lamps aren't full. That's the point. Here, hey, we're all part of the body of Christ. If I have, in fact, one time in the military, it's a hilarious story. One time in the military, I got what's called an NPD. You guys know what that is? You don't ever want to get it. It's a no pay due. I didn't even know there was such things. I had one in my four years in the military. That meant someone somewhere made a mistake and paid me too much. So they decided... I got too much for too long, so the way that they'll make the book square is they're just not paying me. They don't tell you that they're doing that. You just show up for your paycheck like normal, and the cupboards are bare, and the refrigerator's empty, and there's no milk, and there's none of that stuff, and you come for your measly little $150 a month or whatever I was getting then in the Marine Corps, and you hold out your hand for your check, and they go, oh, son, you have an NPD. I don't know what it is, but it doesn't sound good. There's no pay due. We're not paying you. So, what am I supposed to eat? What's your problem? It was around Christmas time when that happened. So, we had a pretty mellow Christmas that year. We wrote little things on notes. 
and said, if we ever have money again, I promise to. <laughs> uh, I remember, all I remember is one of the ones Kathy gave me is 24 hours without nagging. So we've been married 26 years and I try to cash it in every, every once in a while. So baby, can I cash it? No, just forget about it. <clears throat> Nonetheless, we did this. Well, we invited some guys over for dinner and all we had was like a, this, this chicken was so sickly looking, it was like a Cornish game hen in the freezer and we had them little bitty, what do you call them little bitty potatoes? Not them big old Idaho spuds, them little bitty ones. Like russets or I don't know. What are the little ones? Who? Don't you people know potatoes? I'm in Idaho. <laughs> we don't have any of those little potatoes. So we had these little sickly looking potatoes. <laughs> yeah, it was probably seed potatoes and we were eating them. So, so we had those, and we made it, and we invited these guys over, and we're like, I don't know, you know, we prayed over it, and we ate. And it was like, you know, in a small scale, the multiplication of the loaves. I mean, me and Kathy and two of my friends in the Marine Corps, we all ate. We had enough. But it was, you know, just God meeting us in that place and in that time. God supplying our needs. God meeting us there, just trusting in his ability to do it. Even though everything around you says you're not going to have it or you're not going to have enough or it's not going to be okay. God is able. He is able. So here's what David says to them. David says, my brethren, you will not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered us into our hand, the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is, who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be, who stays with the supplies, they shall share alike. He says that the reward is just as plentiful for the one who stays back and prays as it is for the one who is on the field. You see, you see the same concept in the New Testament. The same concept that if we, if, if the Apostle Paul is being sent out and we support him and we're praying for him and we're covering him and we're doing our best to supply his needs, we partake in the same rewards because it is our prayers and our love and our concern and our, the fruit of our uh, fields or what have you that's going with him. It's part. But it isn't part if we're not doing those things. We don't get part just for warming a seat. We get part for, for being a part of the labor, whether we're back with the supplies or we're forward in the battle. And that's an important principle we see uh, throughout Scripture. And here David is saying the same thing. He's saying, listen, it's God who brings the victory. It's God who places the call. Listen, are all called to be apostles? The scripture tells us the answer to that question is no. Are all called prophets? No. But some are called to do this, some are called to do that. Does that make one more important than the other? No. The body receives reward when every part does its share, its part. If my lungs try to do the heart's job, I'm in trouble. It's not going to work out very well, is it? Or if all of a sudden, let's say my kidneys decided that they're tired of being buried in the body and they want to be seen. 
That's not good for the body, right? If all of a sudden my, my bowels open up and my kidneys come out, looking around, hey guys, nobody's going to think that's healthy. But that's the way it is with the body. The body is that each part fulfills its part within the body. Whether seen or not seen, whether out in front or behind. And the reward is the same. Share, share alike. We're all part. We're, we're part of the body of Christ. We're all to fulfill our call. Now you're supposed to fulfill your call. That means to know your call, to seek the Lord, and to be faithful to your call. Again, there is not a call for just keeping a seat warm. There is a call for being involved some way involved in prayer, involved on the front lines, involved in preparation, involved in something. But to be involved, to be a part of what God's doing. So this is what David's saying. Both parts are going to share and share like. So it was from that day forward. He made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel till this day. Now when David came to Ziglag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah. And to his friends saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. See, God's changing his heart. He ran from Judah, right? He fled from Israel. Now he's recognizing some of the stuff I have came from my brothers in Israel. So he sent it. He sent it to Judah. The Bible says the Amalekites were raiding through Judah. Judah is the tribe that, that he is associated with, David. The kingly tribe. He's associated in that. So, so he's, he's sending the, the, the spoil. He's getting back what belongs to his brothers. He's getting his heart back on track. Now, had they done anything for him? No. Last I checked, they were willing to sell him to Saul. That's why he left. But David... Let go of his bitterness, his anger, whatever he could hold against them. And he gave them of the spoils what they didn't deserve. What's that called? Grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Freely gave them what they didn't deserve. When we forgive someone, whether they've asked for it or not, you are giving them grace. Now, remember we talked about it a little earlier, to whom much is given, much is required. Anybody here not receive grace from the Lord? You are saved by faith through grace. It is a gift of God, not of ourselves, lest any man will boast. He gives me grace. I'm supposed to give it. I'm supposed to spread that grace and watch the world change. Well, then he goes on. To those who are in Bethel and those who are in Ramoth of the south and those who are in Jatir and those who are in Aror and those who are in Sithmoth and those who are in Eshtemoa and those who are in Rachel and those who are in the cities of the Jeremelites. And those who were in the cities of the Kenites, that's Caleb's family. And those who were in Hormah, and those who were in Korashan, and those who were in Atak, and those who were in Hebron, 
to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. All the places David traveled. God has, in chapter 30, brought David back. And in chapter 31, God's going to close the door on Saul. And by 2 Samuel chapter 1, the little boy shepherd is going to be king. God's going to do it. As we look at this man after God's own heart and what God does to him, hopefully we can grasp the concept. It's not that he's perfect. It's not that he doesn't make mistakes. It's not that he doesn't end up places he shouldn't be or doing things he shouldn't have done. But it is that when the, when the times get hard and the things are difficult, rather than looking in a hundred different places, he strengthens himself in the Lord. It's God. It's recognizing the, the, the gift of God that, that we have. You and I even greater than David because we have a greater than David to look toward. The Bible lays out for us to consider Jesus. When things are sideways in your life and you're having a hard time and things are tough, the scriptures lay out for us, then consider Jesus. Consider what he did. Consider what he suffered. Consider the gift he gave. If you have a hard time considering those things, then I suggest you sit down in front of your TV, pop into Passion, and watch. Because every stripe he bore, every strike with a hand or a strike with a rod was for you and was for me. Not because we're good, but because if we had been there, we'd have been in the crowd shouting crucify him just like they were. Or we would have had a rod in our hand. Or we would have had the flagellum. And we would have been apart. Because the heart of man is evil. The heart of God is good. So he came to take all that evil. Yours. Mine. My brothers and sisters and people who will never accept the Lord. He took it all. Upon himself, pay the price. By one sacrifice, sin and the power of sin is obliterated in Christ. When I recognize what he has done for me, I have no choice but to respond with love. And that's my motivation. And that's David's motivation for the times that God bails him out. And meets him in those places. And continues to guide and lead him. The Bible tells us that God is long-suffering. He waited for people to repent for 400 years. Anybody here had to wait for anybody for 400 years yet? Are we individually going to be able to exhaust God's patience? Nope, we won't live long enough. So God will be patient with us our whole life. And how will he treat us? How will he look at us? Like this. Hands out. Come. Come. So if we are his hands and feet, 
How should our hands look? Same way, right? Come. Come. Open our arms to a world that needs the forgiveness of Christ. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for just the opportunity to study your word, to open your word, to allow your word to affect us. Lord, to see the the struggles of David and, and the things that he faced, the challenges that lay before him, and to watch God, you deliver the victory. Father, we pray for our lives, each of us, facing our own battles in the camps of the enemies, choices that we made, struggles that we face. But God, you are the deliverer. You always were. You always will be. You are able to deliver me. You are able to do the work that is necessary. And I trust you implicitly in every area of my life. No matter how it looks, no matter how it feels, no matter the, 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 the amount of, of, of tired I can be and just wore out and unable to cross the river. God, even there you meet me. Even there you provide. Even if I'm not able to be in the battle. God, you call us to do battle with our flesh, to obliterate it, to wipe it out, to not give the flesh an inch. And the Bible tells us what the fruit of the Spirit is, and it tells us what the work of the flesh is. And if any of those works of the flesh can be seen evident in my life, I'm not doing the battle I need to do. Anger, wrath, bitterness. Those are in my life. The flesh, I need to do battle and obliterate them. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. God, I I just want my life to reflect who you are. So cause us to be like David and do battle against the flesh and not like Saul and try to make peace. Help us do the battle, be in the battle, win the battle. You give us the victory, God. And may we day by day, moment by moment, when those things arise, give them not an inch. Don't give an inch to our wrath. Don't give an inch to the, to the bitterness in our hearts, but rather bring them before you, make them captive in Christ, and allow your grace to wash us and make us clean. Father, we pray that you would do a perfect work in us because we will do that battle until we see you with our eyes. But on that day, man, what a glorious day that will be. Until that time, God, give us strength, make us strong by the power of your spirit that we might glorify your name in all we do. And we give you the praise and the glory for what you have accomplished in Jesus' name. Amen.